So this time of year reminded me of one of my favorite graduation speeches. I've heard a lot of good ones, and you can actually go online and, and either read or listen to some pretty powerful speeches, but this one's from 2008. I just want to read you a little excerpt of it. It's J.K. Rowling, who is the author of the Harry Potter series of novels, who is now one of the richest and most powerful women in the world, if not just powerful people in the world. Um, she was in, invited to speak at commencement at Harvard, and she entitled her address, The Fringe Benefits of Failure and the Importance of Imagination. And in her speech, she tried to prepare the new graduates for the failure that might enter their new lives. So we bless you. It may not always go smoothly. <laughs> and here's what she said. She said, what I feared most for myself at your age was not poverty, but failure. A failure that, as she described it, actually became a reality. She went on to say, a mere seven years after my graduation day, I had failed on an epic scale. An exceptionally short-lived marriage had imploded, and I was jobless, a lone parent, and as poor as it's possible to be in modern Britain without being homeless. And she goes on to say what she realized through her experience is that failure is unavoidable. She says, you might never fail on a scale that I did, but some failure in life is inevitable. It's impossible to live life without failing at something unless you live so cautiously that you might as well not have lived at all, in which case you fail by default. But failure gave me an inner security that I had never attained by passing examinations. Failure taught me things about myself that I could have learned no other way. So, and this is a very rowling way to say this, given a time turner, I would tell my 21-year-old self that personal happiness lies in knowing that life is not a checklist of acquisition or achievement. It's not your qualifications, your CV. They are not your life. Life is difficult and complicated and beyond anyone's total control, and the humility to know that will enable you to survive its vicissitudes. That's a novelist's way of saying changes. And uh, I think it, it's funny how some of the greatest spiritual discoveries that we can make come not out of or in the seasons of our lives where everything is easy and simple, but in complicated, cha changing, often challenging times. And have you ever, have you noticed this? And have you ever wondered, why is that? Well, all year long, we've been talking about finding good news, the good news of God's activity in our lives. And today we're going to look at how we can find the good things of God in the not yet seasons of our lives. And the, the uh, theologians refer to this time we're living in as the already and the not yet. The already is when we experience the miraculous, when we experience the goodness of God, when we can see it. And the not yet is when it seems so far off or we're waiting. And we live in this tension between these two dynamics of already and not yet. So what happens when you're in a not yet time of your life? And what we're going to see today is that Jesus specifically uses not yet times to do some amazing things in our lives. And this week, he uses a miracle, because we're in a series on miracles, to point that out. And you may have heard of this one. Let me read it to you. This is Matthew 14, starting in verse 22. You guys interested in this? Yeah. Okay, good. All right. All right. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowd. 
And after he dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. And later that night, he was there alone. And the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. And shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. And when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage. It's I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink. And he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith. Why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. And then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you're the Son of God. Now, to begin our discussion today, I'd like to point out that this whole episode begins by Jesus ordering his followers to cross the lake without him. It says, immediately Jesus made the disciples get in the boat and go ahead of him to the other side. And I think this is significant because it means that as Jesus' disciples are crossing the lake, as the wind is against them, as it gets scarier and scarier, they are still in the midst of doing what Jesus had asked them to do. And their trip across the lake is their best effort to do what Jesus wants them to do. But at the same time, they're, quote, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. And so the context, the reason I'm pointing this out for this entire story is that these folks are doing their best, doing their best to follow Jesus, but they're having a really hard time doing it. They're working hard. They're probably sweating. They're straining at the oars, giving it everything that they've got, yet they don't seem to be getting to where they want to be. Does that sound familiar to anyone? Why is that? Why, when people are sometimes doing their best to follow Jesus, does it seem like nothing goes right? You feel stuck in the middle of a lake. You can't get to the other side. Shouldn't it be easy? Shouldn't it be no pun intended, smooth sailing, if you're following Jesus? Scholars um, actually wonder about this. Why are the people who are trying the hardest to follow Jesus hitting these rough waters? And some people think that God is actually orchestrating this whole thing. They think that Jesus knew that the water would be rough and that he was setting them up to get stuck so that he could then reveal to them something new about himself. Others point out that the text never says that Jesus was setting up an object lesson and that rather it's more likely that Jesus just takes advantage of some circumstances that present themselves. And to be honest, there's no way to know. Both could be true or a little of one could be true, a little bit of another one could be true. One could be completely right and the other could be completely wrong. We just simply, we don't know because it doesn't tell us. And I point this out because many times I think when we face difficult waters in our life, we want to know why. In fact, sometimes we can fixate on understanding why and actually miss what God is doing right around us. Sometimes we don't know why things happen. Sometimes there really aren't any answers, only pictures and assurances that God is active in using everything. And that's what we see here. 
Jesus is going to use these challenging circumstances to reveal new things, to encourage his followers, and to build them up. Jesus will use not yet times, but do what? Well, one thing is to blow up the limiting perspectives in our lives. What do I mean? Well, notice that Jesus' followers, when they see him coming on the water, this is what they think. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out. They screamed. They shrieked in fear. I don't know what this sounded like. I don't know why I'm about to tell you this story, but I remember one time I was in Thailand, and you can get these, like, bananas when you go to elephant sanctuary. These are elephants that needed to be rescued, and they're brought back to health. And you can feed them bananas so you buy all these bananas so I remember there's this one like megaton elephant in front of me which I I don't know if that's really safe I don't know if you could do that in the United States there's probably regulations or something but Thailand don't care it's like I could have just grabbed this trunk so I'm, I'm feeding this giant animal a banana and holding the other ones in this hand and then out of nowhere this trunk swings around my waist grabs the bananas and pulls them out of my hand, ripping my belt off and leaving a big snot mark right on my crotch. (laughs) And I shrieked. I went, ah, like a little girl. It was that high pitch, like, ah. And everybody gathered on there, laughed out loud at me. So when I think of these guys crying out in fear, I kind of like to think they sounded like me when I was assaulted by an elephant who stole my bananas. So maybe that's what it sounded like. I'm not sure. <laughs> but here's my point. Uh, now that they're already in this difficult situation, right, their stress level has already climbed because of the weather they're facing, the trouble they're having getting across the water. But here it's going up a level, right? They see something walking on the water approaching them. And what happens? When presented with something new and challenging, they immediately try and fit it into some cultural box. But when, you're faced, when they're faced with something new in an already stressful situation, they just immediately go back to what they know, what they've understood from the past. They're sort of default settings. So it's not surprising that they think they see a ghost because the belief that evil spirits and the ghosts of those who drowned haunted the sea was not uncommon during the day. So being fishermen, it's not hard to imagine that they'd heard stories their entire life about ghosts, about ghost ships, about apparitions that haunted the waters, right? So for them to assume that they were encountering a ghost would not be a leap. It would really just be returning to a cultural understanding that they were very familiar with. And I wonder if this isn't What happens to us when we face challenges that don't make sense to us? We drop back into what we already know. We retreat into what is safe and comfortable, but might also be unhelpful or even misguided. And we don't realize it, but we've actually been trained to view the world in a certain way. That's just what happens as you grow and you develop. Our culture tells us what to think about relationships, what to think about sex, what to think about material goods, time, careers. 
And most of those views are very comfortable for us. They're all we've ever known. And perhaps even more than that, our families have done the same thing. They give us messages about how to cope with stress, stay out of trouble, please the people in our lives, and so much more. And by and large, it's probably mostly good. But what usually happens is that in times of stress, whatever we've learned from our families or the surrounding culture dictates how we respond to the new challenges and difficult things in our lives. But what if some of the cultural understandings we have aren't particularly helpful? The fear of ghosts is not helping Jesus' followers in this passage. You know, a few years ago, I read this book called Souls in Transition. It was written by a couple sociologists, uh, Christian Smith and Patricia Snell. And the book follows young Americans through their journey from adolescence into young adulthood to try and understand their views on religious themes and how they change, how they stay the same. And in their conclusion to the book, they describe what they call, quote, the contemporary cultural crisis of knowledge and value. Now that's a big sort of phrase. I wish they could have made it more pithy. But I think this describes how cultural boxes can be helpful, but also limiting. Here's what they say. It's a little bit of a longer quote, but I think it's helpful. They they write, emerging adults have been raised in a world involving certain outlooks and assumptions that they've clearly absorbed and that they in turn largely affirm and reinforce. It's difficult, if not impossible, in this world that's come to be to actually know anything objectively real or true that can be rationally maintained in a way that might require people to actually change their minds or their lives. So most simply try not to seriously assess, much less criticize anything else that anyone else has chosen to believe, feel, or do. Such a condition arguably encourages the true virtues of humility and openness to difference, precious commodities, we think, that are all too scarce in the world today. But when life's push comes to shove for emerging adults, such such a condition also thwarts many of them from ever being able to decide what they believe is really true, right, and good. On such matters, they're very often simply paralyzed, wishing they could be more definite, wanting to move forward, but simply not knowing how they might possibly know anything worth worthy of conviction and dedication. So what we see here is sort of a both and, right? From our culture, particularly emerging generations, have been given a real value for humility and openness, and those are wonderful things to be valued. But the common cultural perspectives of our day also tend to paralyze us and even steal from us a sense that there's anything worth conviction and dedication. And I think Jesus here in this passage is blowing up that approach. He comes out to the boat, walking on water. Walking, stepping on top of water without any flotation devices or camera tricks. Walking on water. And he's making a point very clearly that there is something different about him. He's walking on water. And that what you thought was possible has changed. 
And Jesus, as we see over and over, wants to challenge some of the structures that we place around reality and that we so easily just slide into during stressful seasons of our lives, during the not yet times of our lives. His main challenge is that he doesn't want to be just an add-on to our established perspectives and worldviews. He doesn't want to be a tweak to what you already know and have figured out. He's not interested in that. We're taught that we should be diligent in building a system of meaning that makes sense and is comfortable to us. And it just feels right. Jesus actually, though, wants us to define everything through him. He wants to be the bearing point, the tipping point, the capstone, all these different metaphors on which and through which everything else is viewed or examined. He wants to be the, capital T-H-E, the thing that gives a sense of true and right and good. Are you picking up on this? You notice that this whole story urges us to judge everything in reference to Jesus as a center. And it's when his followers look away from him, do you notice this? That they start to sink. They sink back into their comfortable perceptions that actually begin to sink their lives, literally. And what we've been trained to do and feel isn't always healthy or helpful. And so Jesus uses these challenging circumstances to reveal what we get stuck in, what we assume, what we never question, what we just think is the way that it is. He's blowing these up and inviting his followers into something different, into something that is about and can empower you to walk on water. So he's blowing those up. That's one thing that Jesus will do in not yet times or difficult times. Another thing is that he encourages us to take risks and try new things. Isn't it interesting that when things aren't working, sometimes that's the time when you actually try something different? So he encourages us to take risks and try new things. In verse 27, it says, But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it's I, don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, tell me to come out to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water. That's a risky thing, yeah? I'm going to guess that's a new thing for Peter. A fisherman who spent his whole life on the water, I doubt he ever actually tried to walk on water. And, you know, two years ago, I don't think Peter is getting out of that boat. And I don't know if he'd ever, a week earlier, gotten out of the boat. But here we see someone trying something that he never thought he would ever be doing in a million years. Have you ever done this? Have you ever tried something just because you know it's something that Jesus has taught or encouraged or modeled in scriptures? Something that was outside of what felt comfortable for you. Something that, like Peter, took stepping out of the boat of your comfort zone and the way that you were brought up, just because you knew or had heard that Jesus encouraged it. And maybe actually you've already rowed out into the rough waters and you're still trying to take some chances 
And sometimes it's the not yet situations that push you out of the boat towards Jesus in new ways. You know, the tradition I grew up in had a real bias, and it's not fair, and I'm not down with it, against other faith traditions. Like the church I grew up in, I guess, thought we were the enlightened ones in some sense, and the other denominations and stuff really had missed the boat. Not meaning to make everything a boat analogy, but there you go. <laughs> and so it wasn't just Catholics, but for the Protestant church I grew up, certainly Catholics were sort of outside the circle, right? Well, it's interesting, um, a few years ago, I hit just for myself a really rough patch personally. And for example, all the ways I had learned to connect to God through prayer weren't working anymore for whatever reason. And I needed something new. I needed something different. And where I ended up landing was meeting with a Catholic priest once a month as a spiritual director. And he would teach me uh, ways about contemplative prayer that my tradition didn't value and was even skeptical of. And you know what happened? This is not going to be a huge surprise for you. I found God in a new way and connected to him in a powerful way through new types of prayer that were outside the circle outside of the comfort zone of the tradition that I came up in. I did a seven-day silent retreat, which for an extrovert, <laughs> there was one point where I called Becca, my wife. She's not, she couldn't be here with us today, but because I could, once a day, I could call my wife. They were like, cool with that. So I said, there was some new superhero movie out, and I said, I don't know if I can take this. I think I'm just going to uh, go to a movie and not talk to anyone. <laughs> but I'm just going to go, and I'm sure with my version of sign language, I can get a ticket to see the Hulk or whatever it was. And I'll just sit in the back and I'll watch it just so I can hear something. <laughs> and then I go, and Becca said, do you think that's really the spirit of what you're <laughs> trying to do? And I was, But it's through trying different things, things that aren't easy. That's a low stakes sort of thing for me. Sometimes it's bigger stakes for you. I don't know what it's been in your life. But you're trying something. You're, you're hanging on for something. You're out in the middle of the lake. It's not what you're comfortable with. And the stakes even feel a lot higher than trying to pray in a new way. And maybe you're like, Peter, you actually feel like here I am, but now I'm sinking. Let's face it, I think, I think Peter makes a bold move here to follow Jesus. He went out on a major limb. He goes towards Jesus with all this enthusiasm, but then he begins to sink. And I think that's what we can experience sometimes. The wind and the waves crash against us. We take a few hits. The water's colder than we expected. It hurts. And before we know it, even though we're invited out onto the water by Jesus, we find ourselves sinking and feeling like we're drowning. And Peter must have been thinking, why did I even get out of the boat? This isn't what I signed up for. And I think at this point, some people might prefer to focus on Peter's lack of faith. But notice what Jesus actually does is point out that he does have a little faith. And what we see here is Jesus in the process of building that up. He doesn't really, well, he doesn't at all let Peter drown. He catches him. Maybe it's at the last moment, but he catches him and pulls him out. 
And for Peter, as he walks on water and begins to sink, he probably thinks that this right now is the defining moment of my life. And his success or failure here seems huge. But actually, this experience isn't Peter's whole life. It looks like it to him at the time. But it actually turns out to be just one moment. And he's really, good news, going to face even tougher challenges before it's all done. And so Jesus is investing in him here. He doesn't let Peter drown, certainly He saves him, and when Peter is safe, he asks him, why didn't you trust me? For those of your parents who have kids, isn't this what you do? Kid doesn't listen to you, does something stupid, gets hurt, almost gets hurt. And you say, why didn't you trust me? You're not doing it to shame the child. You're doing it so that the light bulb goes off. So eventually, your son, your daughter, is like, trust you more. Peter's learning in the bond of trust that he has with Jesus, which had for the moment been reduced to just enough of a little thread to cry out to Jesus, is being reinforced. It's being built up. And this is another thing that can happen in these not yet seasons, is that they can build our relationships with Jesus, build our relationship with him. In the not yet times, It's there that we can really find and encounter Jesus in the deepest ways. Sounds cliche. I don't think I'm saying anything you haven't heard. But it's these times where the theoretical, where the idea of something becomes practical, tangible, that you can touch and feel. And notice that after this experience, this is what Jesus' followers say. Truly, you are the Son of God. Jesus and who he is and what life with him could be like just got real. And the struggle was part of the miracle. What if Peter hadn't sunk? You ever think about that? What if he just strolled out to Jesus and they high-fived? That would be cool. It probably still makes the book, don't you think? Right? But what would he have learned? Well, It's a lot of positive things, I'm sure. He just walked on water. Okay, let's give him that, right? But he might have started to think about his faith as a faith for winners, for people who get it. He got it. But he began to sink, and he finds Jesus in a whole new way. Peter knows Jesus in so many ways here. He knows him as an encourager. He knows him as powerful. He knows him as rescuing, empowering, mind-blowing. When you sink you learn. When you stand, maybe you think you're cool. And maybe you don't change. I would rather say something else. I don't enjoy the process of sinking. And if you know me well enough, you can find some areas in my life where I feel like I'm drowning. I don't like this message on some level. But on another level, it's so hopeful. I want to change. I don't want to be the same person a week from now, let alone five years from now. And Peter and all the people in that boat who saw what happened were changed. And they began to become people who could walk 
on water. Before the story is done, they see some pretty amazing, incredible miracles, and they're part of them. God is working through them to do them, but it doesn't go to their head. Isn't that amazing? Some of the things that happen in the story of the lives of the followers of Jesus after this, they weren't perfect. They make some mistakes. But I, there's, no, there's lots of stories of mistakes. So you know that the authors aren't afraid to throw them out there. But I don't remember a, sto- a story of this really went to Barnabas's head and became a jerk and abused people. Or, you know what I mean? It's like you get conflict, you get mistakes. But it seems like the general rule is humility. Hallelujah, right? There's always some already and not yet. The question is, where is it? So here's what I want to do. If, if you're really into this, maybe you're kind of feeling what I'm saying a little bit. Here's a challenge for you, is that it might feel good right now. You might even be inspired a little bit, but what is going to happen during the week to make it a part of your life? Because some of the best sermons we ever hear that really move our hearts and our minds disappear. So I want to give you a little bit of it. No, I'm not saying this is one of those. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But I want to give you an exercise. So even if this is a terrible sermon, you can do something during the week that might change your life. How about that? So I want you to just take a moment and think. I want you to choose one not yet circumstance in your life. I want you to choose one not yet circumstance where you're going to this week look for Jesus. Okay? And there's a space on your bulletin that as an act of faith or some sort of personal accountability, you can write it down so you can remember that you're going to do something about it this week. Okay? One not yet thing in which I'll look for Jesus this week is blank. I'm just going to give you a couple minutes and just write something in there. And what you're going to do this week, I don't think this is going to be too hard. What I want you to do is I want you to begin to look for Jesus in that situation. Situation where you feel like you're out on a limb. Maybe you feel like God's not coming through for you. Your expectations are not being met. It's not working out. You're drowning. And when you choose that thing, I want you this week to ask Jesus three things. I didn't put these in your bulletin, so you might want to scribble down your note version of these. One thing I want you to ask is where you might have slipped into assumptions and perspectives in your life that might limit what you expect God to do or what you expect he might want to challenge in your life. So the first thing you want to check is your assumptions and perspectives that might be in the way. What, what default, here's another thing, what, same question, but what default settings do you fall back into when things get tough? How do you protect yourself immediately and shut down other things in your life? Okay? What do you think can't happen what do you not have space for? That's always to ask the same question. 
you're going to ask what the assumptions and perspectives are in your life that might limit God. The second thing, what risk or new thing might Jesus be asking you to do in that not yet area of your life? So Peter gets asked, or he sort of asks, and Jesus allows him to get out of the boat. What might Jesus be asking you? Or might, what might you ask Jesus to do that would be risky in that area of your life? So the first thing is assumptions and perspectives. The second thing is what might be risky, but I could do it in that area of my life. And the third question is where is Jesus in the middle of that storm? And if you can find him, it will really build your relationship. Look for what he's doing. Look for the already in the middle of the not yet. So here's what I want you to do to sort of process through this and create space. I want you to carve out 15 minutes twice this week and disconnect. Turn your phone off. Get somewhere alone. You know, I don't know what it is for you. There's one guy that I'm talking with uh, he lives in Utah. <laughs> he goes out in nature. That's what works for him. But 15 minutes, twice, and go through these three questions. And get the clutter out of your head and just see what comes up. No pressure. You don't have to hear trumpets from the sky. But follow those little instincts that you feel in your heart and write them down and do something with them. And you might be on to something that's the Holy Spirit. You might not. But that's what faith is. It's stepping into uncertainty. And I think even if you're not, Jesus will, will meet you there. Does that make sense? 15 minutes twice, ask these three questions. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, uh, there's probably lots of not yet areas in our lives. I pray you put a spotlight on one for us this week where we can take a step back, check our assumptions, look for you, and then consider what you might be asking us to do. And I pray that for each of us, as we actually do that, we would come away with something to try. And I pray that no matter what, we would find you in a new way. And we'd see you with us in the water. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, if you're on the worship team, come on up. Uh, we're going to have a time of musical worship in a second, but before we do, also I'd like to invite a rep from our prayer team. Prayer team prays before the service. And sort of like you're going to do this week, ask the Holy Spirit for impressions. Um, they'll ask the Holy Spirit for impressions about what he might be doing in our congregation, and Bethany's going to share some of those. Good morning. We were praying this morning, and 